Hello, this is John Goldtharp, your host for the Nature Institute podcast in Dialogue with Nature. At the Institute, we see science as a participatory process through which we work to develop dynamic and flexible thinking that can perceive the rich complexity and wholeness of the world. In this episode, we feature a talk on resonant space, given by John McAllis at the Nature Institute on April 25, 2021. The topic explores a way of engagement with phenomena that fosters a reciprocal relationship between human consciousness and the natural world. John McAllis is a senior researcher and educator at the Nature Institute. He helps facilitate workshops and courses on experience-based approaches to studying nature. I'm not going to speak about resonance as a physics sort of introduction to the physics of resonance, but want to explore a little bit a different aspect of resonance as a mode of being related to. We'll get there in a little bit. I'm not going to start there. 1655, Christian Huygen, a Dutch inventor, set two ladder-back chairs back-to-back about three feet apart and placed a beam across them. And from this beam, he hung two pendulum clocks. It's a a bit of a a riddle. Why, Why in the world would anyone hang two pendulum clocks from a beam across two chairs? But Huygens was involved in trying to figure out a way to measure longitude. And the only way to measure longitude, or the way he had thought it would be possible, was to have on every ship two clocks. One would be set for the harbor from which they set sail, and the other one would keep moving forward, would be set, and you could then compare the two of them. This was his idea. And they found that it didn't quite work. It was very hard to get the two pendulum clocks at that time to keep time together. And so he was trying different things. And one thing he tried was to hang the two clocks from the same beam. And as he watched, he put these two clocks on there and something happened that he didn't expect. The pendula began to move in synchronicity with one another, but not in the same direction, but in opposite directions, but with the same period. And he was quite surprised that this would happen. He didn't expect it to happen. When he first presented it, he spoke of an odd sympathy between the two clocks. So this is a phenomenon, a a phenomenon that is known since then and is still not understood completely, why these two clocks hanging from the same beam move into the same period or frequency of movement. What did arise out of this first observation was the recognition of something that is now known as sympathetic resonance. It's a very specific form of resonance. Resonance is a wide field, but the recognition of sympathetic resonance, which also occurs when you take two tuning forks and bring them close together, And the second one will begin to sound. We see if we can do that in a way that will let you hear it too. I have an amplifier. I have a low-tech amplifier. Which is just a cello body. My children took the strings off so I wouldn't be tempted to play for you. They said that wouldn't be fair to do in a public lecture. So we try this. Can you hear it? Barely. It's not a big thing. See, resonance is a very gentle thing, a very intimate thing. This quality of resonance, or this sympathetic resonance, where you have two sounding 
bodies. One which we strike and we let it sound. We bring it into proximity with another. And the other takes on its voice. And yet, it does not simply echo this one. It begins to sound on its own. It's a phenomenon that is, of course, quite entrancing. One can do that for hours, but we won't. We have a specific relationship between two bodies where one picks up the vibration of the other and continues to let it resound. They do not touch each other. There must be a space between, and there must be a space between that allows that to happen. And this, in technical terms, this is the resonant space. The space between that allows the vibrations of one body to be taken on by the other. That's sort of the basis for what we want to do today. In the last few years, there has been an awakening interest in the question of how we relate to the world around us. What is the relationship that we experience to something that we meet, to something that comes to meet us, is there a way to start to characterize that that doesn't place the human being outside of what's happening, but recognizes that in this meeting, something is happening between the person observing, the person encountering, and what is being encountered. We're not simply dealing with two discrete and separate things that somehow figure out a relatedness, but we're actually dealing with qualities of relatedness that are inherent in the situation, but which we often do not notice or take into account. And one of the people who has picked this up most intensively is a German researcher from the University of Jena named Hartmut Rosa. And his first interest was the question, how does learning actually take place in a classroom? How does learning happen? Can you think of a classroom as a resonant space where in the engagement of the student and the presence of content or phenomena, that something happens in between them where you can speak, ah, that is learning. And that this learning is absolutely dependent on a relatedness being developed between child and world. And that this relatedness has a certain reciprocity. This is Rose's thesis, I would say. To know it, if you're a teacher, you can have experiences. I recently introduced a group of middle school students to the esoteric riddles of finding the area of a circle, which is, you could say, oh, that's an easy thing, right? Everybody knows how to do that. But how do you actually bring a group of students who are completely foreign to these relationships between radius and perimeter and area, uh, circumference and pi, all these riddles that have great meaning. How do you bring the students to the point where they can say, oh yeah, that's right, that works, that belongs together. How do you bring the student into a relationship with the content where the lawfulness of those relationships in the world light up in the child as the experience of meaning? That's the question. The way I did it was I had them take a long rope and measure the driveway. Well, first measure the rope, and then with the rope measure the driveway. 
until they know that the driveway is so long. And then I had them walk the driveway three times. Three times down, three times up, and each time counting their paces. And then averaging that, so they get a good sense of, oh, each pace, and that full body, each pace is about that long for me. For the little ones, it's shorter. That's okay. And then we took ropes. We took a, a shorter rope, which became our radius. And then we could measure that. I would hold it in the middle, and they would go out to the end of it, and they would walk around, counting their paces. So we did this. Different students, different times, different radii. Until we had this feeling, oh yeah, there is something, how can you say that, there is something that is always the same in that. Any one length is going to lead to about the same length of walking, full body. And then we did it with smaller things, with things that they could measure, they could find the diameter. You know how to find the diameter of a circle, where you have to twist the thing until it doesn't get any bigger, it starts getting smaller, and then you go back to that point. So. So what they did, and then we would take a string and do the circumference. And they would feel their way into it. We had all this on the board, all written down. And then they sat down, and they started averaging. (laughs) And if you ever want to get children to practice arithmetic, let them do real measurements in the world and then average them. If you want to try to get them to practice arithmetic and you give them sheets of paper, it doesn't work. But you get them involved in something real, it's in there, and then they go to work. They start to be no longer distanced from the question, but they move closer to it. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? So that this distance between world and child or world and subject, that becomes filled in a certain sense, a sort of a space, and you can feel the atmosphere shift. You can feel, you can see the students sit up a little more, they come forward a bit, their cheeks get red and a little bit. That's not because they're, they're battling and teasing each other, although that happens too. But they're there, and you can say that ah, this space that's developed between world in the form of the area of a circle and student in the form of trying to learn it, of being engaged with it, that that starts to take on a different feel. That feel is what Rosa describes as resonance, as a resonant space. That feeling, that buzz, that crackling in the space, in the room, that that's alive, that this space between becomes alive. And that's I think one of the big challenges we face today is how do we actually work consciously or intentionally to bring this space between alive? I mean, the last year has told us how unalive that is, where you hear this and this this and this and this and this and you can't ever enter into such a relationship with the virus or with COVID or with the news or whatever it is that you get a feeling oh yeah I understand it I understand it you could say oh no he understands it I'll go with him or oh no she understands it we'll go with her or oh They understand it. And you get this ridiculous situation where you're living in a situation which would make a lot of sense to understand, but you don't ever become engaged with it in a way that allows you to understand it. It's always distant. 
we won't even go into the problems of manufactured consent and enforced consent. You begin to realize that the whole, the whole focus of the last months has been to make sure that the individual human being does not engage in the question to the depth where they can actually understand something. This is a problem that goes through our entire society at the moment. We are bombarded, but never engaged. And this is what Rosa begins to wrestle with. Can we speak of resonance as a necessary form of relatedness? Not simply a psychological metaphor, but what happens when you actually alienate the human being in such a way that they are no longer able to engage with their lives? What happens? Develops this polar or this pair of polar opposites, resonance and alienation. What does he say about them? Resonance. He says about resonance that resonance is a kind of relationship with the world in which subject and world are mutually affected and transformed. It's quite a statement from an academic researcher. Not only that the individual, the subject, learns something about, but in the learning, in the becoming engaged with, is changed and world is changed. That there is a critical relationship between the knower and the world that is known. Resonance is not an echo, but a responsive relationship requiring both sides to speak with their own voice. That's a little what we hear here, right? It doesn't just echo the first one, but it has to sound with its own voice. So you have two parties that each has a voice and can each speak with their own voice. We're coming to come back to that a little later. Resonant relationships require that both subject and world be sufficiently closed or self-sufficient to each speak in their own voice while also remaining open enough to be affected or reached by the other. So an open closedness or a closed openness, not simply open, not simply become one with, but a, a being able to have a stand and yet for that stand to be open enough to embrace, accept, and hear the voice of the other. Self and other, both necessary. One can't simply dissolve one for the other. But the openness is also necessary, that they can meet and resonate. So closed and open at the same time. And then resonance is not an emotional state but a mode of relation that is neutral with respect to emotional content. Which is interesting. And then he says, we can love sad stories. That means it's not simply a psychological phenomenon. It is a whole, I want to say a whole human organism mode of relating to, of being with. Alienation, on the other hand, alienation denotes a specific form of relationship to the world in which subject and world confront each other with indifference or hostility and thus without any inner connection. 
It can be defined as a relation of relationlessness. It's a very apt description, a relation of relationlessness. Do you know Barry Lopez? Barry Lopez is a writer, a very fine observer of nature and a very close friend of the still existing indigenous peoples in the world. And he, he speaks of it in a way that he says, we often have the tendency to not really be anywhere, even if we're there. We'd rather think, we'd rather, we'd rather think about the fox slinking through the meadow than to be with the fox slinking through the meadow. That we have sort of an innate distancing in our relation to world. And Rosa takes that a step further and says, yeah, if that becomes sort of the embodied attitude, what you have is a relation of relationlessness. The world becomes a mute and unspeaking thing. Rosa's words. The world loses its voice. It becomes mute. It becomes a thing. The reciprocal side of that is that the human being also experiences themselves as inconsequential. That we, the subject, has no real meaning because there is no connection to what is happening what they're meeting, what we're meeting. We don't mean anything in that mode of relatedness. Could say, we lose our weight. We lose our gravity as a subject, as thinking, oh, it's important what I do. Well, if there is no relatedness, is there any importance, any significance? individual act of any significance. Alienation is the embodied enactment of the experience of distance or being apart from. Its primary characteristic is one of reification, a world of things also separate from one another as they are from me. means we lose the experience of that, I'm going to say, the rich space of relatedness that can develop between myself and you, or myself and a tree, myself and a flower, myself and a virus, maybe. We don't know. That's sort of a question. We won't go there. So, okay. Is there a way to shift that? Is there a way to think about moving into and in moving into this space of relatedness, actually crafting a resonant space? And I want to say a resonant space now would be one in which world can bring itself to expression in me. Not where I know about world or know about things, but in which a relationship to the world in which what we meet, what we encounter, what we engage with can bring itself to expression in me. Can I speak for it? Would be in some ways the goal. I'd like to just do that in a series of steps that I first came across in an encounter with a cactus, a story that I am not going to tell, except that it was a close encounter (laughs) with another, so that it actually was a penetrating encounter and stuck with me for a long time. In fact, it was very difficult to get rid of. But in this experience, which was a number of years ago, I began to think of, well, what are the stages of an intimate relationship 
with, I'm going to say for the moment, the natural world. What are the stages? How can we move in the right way? So you could say resonance, this vibration, this is movement. And one movement, in a certain sense, sparks the other. And they, they sound together. So one could say, well, what's, what's the quality of movement that brings me into a relatedness with what I encounter that I can think of as being resonant or experience as being resonant. So this first one is we have to meet things, which means you have to get out and move. You can't, it's a funny thing, you can't have that space sitting in front of a computer because you don't move. And to to meet, you have to move. You have to move out into the world. And moving in the world is a fascinating experience because if you think about it, as you move through the world, the world changes constantly. It doesn't just stay the same. You take any tree, as you move past it, its shape changes. The light changes on it. Its perceptual reality is in a constant flux. If you stand far away from a tree, to see it, to see the whole tree, you see the whole tree? Can you see it over there? You see the whole tree? Pine, nice big spreading branches. And then you move towards it, pine changes. You see the pine more closely, but you see less of the pine. That movement of the human being through the world is something we don't really pay much attention to. That the world is constantly showing us other sides of herself as we move. This was Thoreau's wonderful description in his essay, Walking. This question of sauntering of actually moving through the world and being aware, being aware of the world changing around me as I go. And it's always interesting that if you can manage to do that, if you can manage to bring that into a practice, there are things that, even if you walk the same path every day, each day brings something new the world shows you a different side of herself, a little something. We often just walk right by. We don't meet it. This first step, I'm going to call meeting or sometimes encountering, you have to get out and move and then be open enough to encounter what comes to meet you and not just walk on by You meet something, and then you can realize, at first, you're the one moving, and yet, if you notice it, something changes. Because you are not simply the one moving through the world. Something comes towards you. This experience of noticing. Goethe speaks of it as the world thrusting itself upon you, which is a little sort of Gertian language, this feeling there's something that comes to meet me. And it's an interesting thing, it slows you down, doesn't it? So you notice something, you're not just sauntering on, you notice something, and this coming to meet you, it slows you down. There's a restraining that takes place. World comes to meet me. I notice. I slow down. And now comes probably one of those key moments in this process. There's an inner decision to be made. There's an intentional moment that comes. I can either turn towards it or I can turn away from it. And this turning towards, that's an act of freedom. 
the meeting and the noticing, they're somehow given. But this moment where you can turn towards or continue on, this is a moment of freedom. It takes a choice to turn towards. The turning towards is one of those things that you can say, ah, do I have time? This is one of these great things in today's world. No one has time. So you notice things that could be great. Two geese on the pond, the rhythm of their calls in sync with each other. Have you heard that recently? The springtime geese calls? It's a call and response. And then the one will change. And they're like, I can't do it. But anyway, and if you stay there, you realize, if you stop, right, you can keep going with geese <laughs> because they're loud. Uh, and just sort of listen with half an ear. But if you actually stop and listen, you begin to wonder, well, what's happening between the two geese, right? What, what, what's happening there? Are they telling each other stories? <laughs> but this turning towards is a decisive moment. So by the last snow, you remember? Not this last one, but the last, last one, the... the previous one, where we even got some snow, and that the world became so nice and white and round again, and yet the streams were flowing. The streams flowing between the snow, black water, white snow, the stream sort of, if you think of the landscape isn't flat, a little hilly, so the stream appears and disappears. It has this sinuous quality that goes down through this black, sinuous movement through the white snow. And I was watching it, and then there was suddenly another sinuous movement. The first response was, you know, that's just another little arm of water that I hadn't noticed. But it didn't feel right. And this turning towards is also often connected with a I'm going to say with a little bit of dissatisfaction in one's initial judgment of a situation. So it didn't quite feel right, this sinuous blackness that was along the side of the stream. And so I turned towards. And for the first time in my life here, saw an otter. An otter with this dark, dark black, so this deep black of the otter and the sinuous movement. It was almost not discernible that it wasn't just another little bit of water going through, but just didn't quite feel right, as though there was another presence there, not only the water and the snow. And this little bit of dissatisfaction of one's initial judgments is often the impetus that makes us turn towards. We should never overlook dissatisfaction. That's all I wanted to say with that. It's very important. So not to be too cocksure. Oh yeah, that's that, that's that, that's that. But to give it a little, is it that? <laughs> and to listen inwardly to the feeling you have in that moment, this turning towards, you could say inwardly, inwardly it is the expression of an opening for the other. It's an expression of being open for the presence of what's there, what has come to meet me, what I have noticed. It's an opening. And it is followed then by something I'm going to describe as a concentration of a stream of attentiveness. I know that sounds silly. You could just say focusing your attention. But not just focusing the attention. It's as though this attentiveness that we have when we're in the world, even when we don't think we have it or we think other people don't have it, which is usually the case, it's an activity. It's also a movement. It's an inner movement. And this movement now streams together. 
becomes concentrated and in its concentration takes on a certain, let me say, a certain strength, becomes stronger by being concentrated. And we attend to what we have turned towards. We observe. We we try to anticipate where it's going to appear again. (laughs) Or, right? We let it begin to show itself in the way it brings itself to expression. We attend to, and you realize that in that moment that this attending to is not, again, not simply unidirectional. There's a dialogue that unfolds back and forth, a back and forth. You could say that these four steps If we could just do those four steps at a societal level, things would be much different. Just become a basic life practice, right? To say, oh, to to go out, to meet things, to notice them, to turn towards them and be attentive to them. You say, that's a wonderful practice. And it would be enriching. It would make a major difference in the world. And yet you can make the decision to continue. And I think this is where practice becomes science or practice becomes a discipline. Can I say it that way? Because we attend to and observe and we can be enriched by and you can have that feeling uh, that there is an enrichment through the relationship that has grown. The plant has been seen. And it's often, I think, even that, the plant being seen, experiencing itself being seen, has a value. But I want to come back to that at the end because there's something very special in that. The plants are there, right? Are they? I mean, for me, the plant is only there when I engage with it. If I don't engage with it, it's not there, right? No? I mean, you could say from a great abstract cosmological point of view, of course, it's there. But for the actual experience of an embodied being, being in the world, the plant is there when I engage with it. I think there is a real question in this relationship. We live in a time where nature, the natural world, is being abused, exploited, raped. I mean, we could say we are, and we are part of that. I mean, there's no question about it. We have pushed the earth to the very extremes of her capacity to heal herself. Is that the only problem? That we are using? Is it also not so that we have lost interest in the earth? And not, and it not just lost interest. It's not as, I mean, for most people, it's just not that interesting. This is more interesting. There are all sorts of things. You could say, well, what is this relationship? Is that, is the earth, is earth, is nature, is the natural world, or is human interest an integral part of the natural world? And what happens when we take it away? Question. But if you begin to observe and attend to some things, you realize that there are certain ones that speak to you more strongly than other ones. There are certain things that sort of awaken in you as a question, as a riddle, a riddle that you don't just want to answer, but you want to solve in a certain sense. And now, this whole practice takes a turn. Because now you could say, it's one thing to meet an otter and observe it and be moved by it and have interest for it. It's another thing to let the otter live on in me or to live with 
the otter, to let the otter be a part of me, to start wondering about this otterness, utter otterness, this wonderful creature, its movements. I mean, have you ever watched an otter move? It's remarkable. It is flow. I mean, the whole thing flows. And then it into the water, out of the water. It's a remarkable movement. And you could say, I can choose to actually give some of my attention and interest in an ongoing manner to otter. I let it live in me, and then I return to it. I don't just have it be an incident in life. (laughs) I begin to cultivate a relationship to it. I think about it. I reimagine the movement. I go back, sit quietly on the bank of the stream, and hope hope (laughs) that the otter shows itself again. Maybe, maybe not. But I go back again. So I met otter and encountered otter and became attentive to otter, but this living on with otter, that means otter has become a real part of me. It lives on in me. I think about otter, right? And then I go back, and this becomes a practice. This becomes a discipline where I try to stay in relationship with, and I deepen that relationship. I begin to understand, to to track the otter, to find where it has its, its holes, where it lives, how its footprints look, and all these things. I begin to become engaged with otter and with otterness. And I begin to keep a record of what I am discovering. It begins to live on. Can you picture that? This is a new step. Now I'm moving into a different intentional relationship with this animal, with this creature. And I can deepen that as I understand its bodily form, its physiology, the way it lives, its lifestyle, its behavior. I observe, I make notes, I look what others have done. I become involved with the otter. Uh, It's such a lovely thing. And Interestingly enough that if I can do that regularly, if I can do that with some discipline, I begin to catch glimpses of the nature of the otter. Not just the initial being surprised by and being taken up by, but I begin to catch glimpses of what is specific to otter. And... I begin to have glimpses or I begin to... I'm going to say it my way. Others say it other ways. But I begin to hear the otter speak in its own voice. Not in my voice. And not in the voice of other people who tell me what otters are. But I begin... I don't go out and I don't hear otters speaking. But I begin, in a certain sense, to glimpse in the language of the otter living. Glimpse... I hear that voice. I hear what it speaks, how it expresses itself in the world. And I begin more and more to feel a sense of responsibility for the otter. And this is one of those great surprises in this path. It begins to become as though it were an extension of oneself. One feels responsible. One experiences the feeling of responsibility for and caring for. 
I have a great love of horn beams. Horn beams, they have a wonderful way of budding. I don't know if anyone has followed that. One experience where I followed the horn beams from Slovenia, so the springtime moves north. I saw the first leafing of a horn beam in Slovenia, and then in northern Italy, and then in Switzerland, so moving north with the spring, and then in Kassel, Germany, where everything's a little colder. We came with a group of students, and we were observing the hornbeam, right? And these were students who were, there was a group of Chinese and Eastern European students, and they got into a very heated discussion about the mystery of the hornbeam budding. That is a mystery. That went on, and <laughs> I didn't sort of stop and say, no, 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 no. We looked, and they looked, and they, oh, is that that? Is this that? And then I thought the next day I would go out and cut some branches from the hornbeam to bring into the classroom to dissect and show them the way it really is. Went out early in the morning so nobody would see me. I don't know if you're supposed to be cutting branches from the shrubs in Kassel, but in any case, went out and came up the hillside. It's just at the top of a slope, a field that goes up with big woods in between, in behind, and there was this hornbeam. And came up to it and took out my scissors and found I couldn't cut it. Found I just couldn't cut it. It just didn't. It wasn't that the scissors were too dull. No, in that moment, there was something that said a feeling of restraint and respect. The sense that we had engaged with it in such a way that we had come up through, that I had watched them all the way up through, that I had this feeling I care too much about it to cut it. That was a nice thing. That was a nice moment. Because for the first time, I think I really understood what this is all about. It's not just about a different way of knowing the same things. That wasn't Goethe's path. It's not just a different way of describing things and coming to new insights. It's a way of knowing that moves you into an intimacy with the world that expresses itself in me as this impetus to take care. It's a science of caring, not a science of knowing. And yet that caring wouldn't come if we didn't take it through that needle eye of knowing. If we didn't have the distance, we would never be able to choose to care. With so much happening in the world and so many wonderful inventions and technological advances, you could say, a science whose primary focus is to awaken the capacity to care. How will you ever market it? But this is what it's all about. This is our path. This is the gift that we've been given to take care of, to be able to practice this moving into relationship with where we stop thinking of bees as pollinators, right? Worried about the collapse of the food distribution system in America if the bees dies because they're pollinators and we don't have any robot pollinators yet to replace them. This is an expression of alienation. There's no ecological future in this attitude, but to be able to live with and understand the bee as bee, 
the being of the bee, the bee being, which is a lovely thing. Go back just to Lopez for a moment to close. One of his last essays, not last, but a very late essay, is called The Invitation. I don't know if anyone has, has read it. It's the kind of essay that you would wish you had written yourself, if you could. In it, he describes, again, he goes back to being with a group of indigenous friends, moving through now the Arctic, and coming upon a grizzly bear eating a caribou. He describes the difference between their response to this event and his own. One of the nice things about Lopez is that he's very honest, comparing his own reactions or responses to those of others. He says, their framework for the phenomenon, one that I might later shorten to just meeting the bear, was more voluminous than mine. Isn't that lovely? A response that has more volume. It's deeper, it's bigger, like a bear. And where my temporal boundaries for the event would normally consist of little more than the moments of the encounter itself, theirs included the time before we arrived, as well as the time after we left. For me, the bear was a noun, the subject of a sentence. For them, it was a verb, the gerund bearing. It goes on to describe how they followed this bearing, the bearing, not the bearing, but the being bear, they follow it out into the landscape. And they can see, they get, have a sense of where the bear has come from and where the bear will go. And he closes this way, as I will too. A grizzly bear stripping fruit from blackberry vines in a thicket is more than a bear stripping fruit from blackberry vines in a thicket. It is a point of entry into a world most of us have turned our backs on in an effort to go somewhere else, believing we'll be better off just thinking about a grizzly bear stripping fruit from blackberry vines in a thicket. The moment is an invitation, and the bear's invitation to participate is offered without prejudice to anyone passing by. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Nature Institute. If you'd like to listen to additional episodes in our podcast or just learn more about our work, you'll find us at natureinstitute.org. Thank you for listening.